don't use calomel, this calls for a balsam specific. Everybody knows Civil War Pharmacy, or do they? We'll find out more about it when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. On Sound Authors, you can expect the unexpected. Kent Gustafson, Ph.D., author, publisher, professional musician, and now talk radio show host, will not only entertain you, but with new books and guest authors from around the world, will interview talented independent musicians showcasing their fresh new music. Plan to join Dr. Kent and friends each Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, on World Talk Radio Studio A. Sound Authors, where authors sound off. Once upon a time, there lived three energy hogs. Now, an energy hog is what you have when humans waste energy. One day, the three energy hogs set out to find themselves a cottage. Let's look for leaky windows, said the first energy hog, for he knew that would waste energy. Let's look for leaky doors, said the second. Let's look for a swing set, said the third, for he had more blubber than brains. So they set off down the road. Presently, they came upon a tiny cottage where dwelt a clever girl named Dreadylocks. I hope it has leaky windows, cried the first energy hog. I hope it has leaky doors. Cried the second. I hope he had the bathroom. Cried the third, for only his brains were smaller than his bladder. But Dreadilocks liked playing cool games at energyhog.org. And from energyhog.org, she learned how to use energy wisely. So the three energy hogs were forced to look elsewhere to waste energy and had to use the disgusting restroom at the gas station down the road. And the moral of the story is, to use energy wisely, log on to energyhog.org or waste not, hog not. This public service message brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy and the Ad Council. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Michael A. Flannery, who's the co-editor of a book called Well Satisfied with My Position, the Civil War journalist Spencer Bonsall. Spencer Bonsall, we found out in the first segment, was a hospital steward with the 81st Pennsylvania, uh, but no ordinary character, somebody of education, uh, someone who had traveled widely and done all kinds of interesting things before the war, and uh, in the war serves as uh, a steward, which also makes him what we'd consider today a pharmacist. Um, Michael, let me ask a question about that, that pre-war career of, of Spencer Bonsall. Uh, I understand he traveled around the world. He did. And uh, not only did he travel around the world, but he uh, sojourned for a while in in an interesting tea plantation in, of all places, India, where he uh, stayed for, um, oh, I think around eight years. So he was really not, uh, not your average enlistee when he joins the army not at all not at all he had done a variety of things not only uh working on the tea plantation but he had also been a land surveyor in and around the city of uh, philadelphia uh besides being a uh a, a practicing pharmacist now was, was pharmacy considered a separate profession at that time well, it was beginning. Um, the American Pharmaceutical Association wasn't really started until 1852, so um, it, it was, you know, had only gone through its first decade. But the vast majority of of practicing pharmacists at that time 
received their training not formally in schools but through the apprenticeship system and uh that is indeed the way the way uh, uh Spencer Bonsell had gotten his training so it was a profession it was an emerging profession but really had not cut those apron strings from medicine in many ways at this point that would come well that would come after the civil war you mentioned some uh, some other pharmacists who were involved with the Civil War. Uh, I saw in a, a footnote or a, a brief mention that uh, James Verner was one of them. Yeah, right. Verner's ginger ale. I, I grew um, up in Detroit, so I'm very familiar with Verner's. Right, and uh, he uh, concocted this this ginger based beverage uh, that was quite popular uh, and and really. Uh, uh, took it uh, to uh, to new heights by just creating a business about the beverage that he had created during the war. Right, he was in a he served in a Michigan regiment. Um, I'm trying to recall which one it was, but his uh, uh, the Verner papers are in the uh, the Burton Historical Collection. Oh, that's that's De- very interesting. Detroit I, I, Public I, Library, if you're ever. Yeah. Interested in exploring more about this fellow. Well, being from Detroit, another uh, famous uh, person was Frederick Stearns, who who uh, uh, was a medical purveyor um, during the war, and later, I mean, he would uh, the Stearns uh, Drug Manufacturing Company, which was in Michigan, was a very prominent one, uh, and uh, he had, in many ways, gained a lot of his. Uh, uh, a lot of his uh, uh, business acumen uh, during the war. Uh-huh. Um, to tie up that reference, I just checked my shelf copy. Uh, Werner was in the uh, 4th Michigan Cavalry uh-huh. and uh, served in the Army of the Ohio Interesting. Uh, out west, but but as a hospital steward, much like Bonsall, as, right. as you note. Right. So these people knew, um, they, they knew, they, they had the, the pharmacological knowledge of the day. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious about that. What uh, uh, what kind what, of remedies did they, what did they know? Yeah. What? Well, um, the standard supply table, which was what the, the you know the hospital steward not only had at his disposal, but what he was responsible for maintaining and keeping stocked, uh, was full of a variety of, of of different remedies, and I suppose uh, one, a lot. If we were to look at them today, we would be struck by how many were botanical in nature. Herbal medicines were very big uh, during the Civil War through much of the 19th century, but also some particularly prominent minerals. One of which was uh, of major importance, called calomel, mercurous chloride. Mercurous chloride, given in various doses, does various things. But but one of the things that it was used for is it was used as a purgative to sort of purge the body. Uh, many men, uh, many uh, surgeons and assistant surgeons used it. Uh, it was a it was a standard remedy and well used uh, in civilian life. And so, uh, in military life, they adopted the practice. Uh, however, uh, there was concerns about the abuse of calomel because it's very caustic. It's a, it's a toxic sub- substance and uh, can cause uh, some um, uh, uh, rather untoward uh, uh, effects uh, when taken uh, over long periods of time or when given in particularly high dosages. Uh, so much so that uh, that uh, that uh, William Hammond actually removed it from the supply table 
uh, in circular number six in 1863, and, and in fact, uh, even uh, took a lot of flack for it. And in fact, uh, some have suggested uh, uh, that even precipitated uh, his colleagues really abandoning him and really pushing for his court martial, which was essentially was the kangaroo court. Yeah, he was court martial. Yes. I'm sorry. Who was Hammond? Uh, Hammond was the Surgeon General for the uh, 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 medical department of the Union. So, and he changed the the, the tables or what what the standard supply chest should contain. And he did, uh, and and one of the things that he did was he removed calomel from the standard supply table. Um, because he felt that, uh, I think in his words, this is his uh, best of my recollection, he says something to the effect that um, its continued presence on the supply table would be a tacit invitation to its use. Uh, what about, um, well, what, what's the ingredient in calomel? What makes it work? Uh, it's mercury. Basically, what we, we would know today is mercury, mercurous chloride. Um, it's 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 very toxic um, when given in uh, low doses. Um, you you adjust the dosage for what you're trying to do, but it causes a pretty intense evacuation of the bowels. Uh. Um, so you know, physicians back then did one or two things. They they either had your 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 bowels open or they were trying to close them up. So they were either, you know, one uh, southern surgeon talks about going from man to man with uh, with uh, two medicines stuffed in his pocket. Uh in one pocket, um he has calomel. That's uh, to to you know, to give them a powerful laxative and those that had diarrhea uh, he had a ball of uh, opium, and he would give him opium to slow down uh, the bowels. So he would come up to each man and said, are your bowels open or closed? And he would apply the appropriate remedy accordingly. Wow. <laughs> now, I, I recall reading somewhere in my history education the statistic that uh, a person was, 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 by probability, safer not going to a doctor than going to a doctor until about 1920. Uh, that's uh, probably a pretty fair assessment. Of course, by the Civil War, one thing is on the wane, and that's a good thing, and that was the the practice of bleeding. Uh, uh, it was still done, but it was done far less than it had been done in the previous generation of physicians. And certainly by the end of the 19th century, bleeding was completely gone. But they were still dosing with calomel with uh, with a fair degree of reckless abandon. Um, that would, of course, change around the turn of the century. And, of course, eventually, as we would get uh, in the last quarter of the 19th century, uh, germ theory of medicine and some of the... Uh, uh, antibiotic uh, uh, agents of the uh, 20th century, of course, all that would change. Now, I, I've just finished a book about Abraham Lincoln that I'm endlessly flogging to our listeners here. Did Lincoln Own Slaves is the title. And uh, one thing I came across uh, in researching that was the fact that Lincoln occasionally took blue mass pills. Yeah, that's, that would be basically what I'm talking about when we're talking about calomel. That that was just the, the name for the same it was, name. It was just another form of it. Yes. So so he was poisoning himself with mercury. Yeah, but that was you know that was the remedy of the day. I mean, mm -hmm. um, it was it was felt uh, that it uh, purged the body, uh, it uh, removed the toxins, and uh, the toxicity of of this uh, compound 
was uh, was uh, was understood, but but not uh, but not well appreciated. I think it was James Henry Hammond, the uh, the Southern politician, uh, who, if people know about him, he, he's the one who coined the phrase "Cotton is King." Mm-hmm. Uh, he he left a journal that Drew Faust, who's now the the president at Harvard, uh, edited years ago, and. Uh, well, I actually wrote a biography of him. Is what it was, and and I recall reading that biography, and he dosed himself daily with that uh, with, with calomel and, until he had a successful evacuation. Yeah, believing right. that was the key to health until it finally killed him. Uh, <laughs> That's true. Another person who received uh, uh, regular doses of, of calomel was uh, uh, Andrew Jackson. Ah, so so his temper may have had something to do with. His... <laughs> I'm sure it didn't. Uh, I'm sure it didn't lift his spirits. So. <laughs> wow. Um, well, one reason why I'm pursuing this is I, I, you have an, another book that I have not been able to get a copy of, but uh, titled "The Civil War Pharmacy." Is that correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. What's in that book? Oh, well, that's uh, that's really a one one volume go to source for all things relative to. Uh, uh, Pharmacy during the war, professional practice during the war, how the uh, how the uh, purveyor system was uh, organized and established, and how it operated both north and south. Um, I have the uh, standard supply tables for field and hospital for the north and south. Um, I have. Uh, the major remedies that were used and what they were used for and why and uh, a discussion of the various dosage forms. So um, I like to think it's a, a fairly complete uh, treatment of the whole issue of, of not only pharmacy per se, but also the medicines that were compounded and administered during the Civil War. Is that book uh, available? Yeah, it, it is available. Uh, it was published by Pharmaceutical Products Press, which was uh, uh, an imprint of um, of Hayworth Press, which I believe recently has been uh, sold to uh, Francis and Taylor. Okay. So I'm sure there's a website uh, for Francis and Taylor, and if you hop on there, uh, for that matter, you should be able to uh, get it on Amazon.com. I think if you if you put in uh, Civil War Pharmacy, there's no other book really that's quite, quite that like it. So that. you should be able to pull it up. Well, I, I, it, the, as I was reading uh, the Journal of Spencer Bonsall, which is published by Southern Illinois University Press. Um, of course, on the back it mentions your your other publications and Civil War Pharmacy mm-hmm. is there. Uh, one question that that I was always asked when I uh, worked in a museum, if I was ever talking about the Civil War and then casualties, the students, especially the young boys, would be uh, full of questions about uh, guns and killing and all the things that fascinate them. Uh, and amputations, of course, uh, you know, comes right to the head of the list of things the eight-year-old boy wants to ask about. Mm-hmm. Uh, did they have – how widely used were anesthetics? Uh, well, let's, if you don't mind, let me back up on your, sure. on your question there a little bit because it does relate to amputations, and I think it's, it's, it's worth talking about just a bit. Let's do that. Uh, when, when we think about healthcare during the Civil War, in fact, one of the reasons I wrote Civil War Pharmacy is I think in the popular imagination, if there's, if there's a popular image of Civil War medicine, the first thing that pops into most people's heads are, you know, bloodied surgeons standing around um, 
moaning, groaning um, soldiers uh, with arms and legs being lopped off as fast as they could possibly do it. Uh, usually in grotesque, unsanitary conditions, with the men biting on a rope after being um, well doused with about the most powerful whiskey they could find. I think that's a popular image. It's the image that, that about I right. had. Yeah. Um, in fact, the big killer of the Civil War was not battlefield injury. The big killer during the Civil War was disease. And the big disease that killed most of the men was dysentery. Uh. More men died of dysentery than ever died of a battlefield injury. And in fact, statistically speaking, if an average soldier would contemplate his mortality, uh, statistically speaking, he had about twice the likelihood of dying of a camp disease than he did of a battlefield injury. By things like dysentery, things like uh, malarial fever, um, even things like measles, which we don't think of as a, as a great killer, was a great debilitator during the war. Um, there's a great book on that by Paul Steiner called Disease in the Civil War. It's, a, it's an old book. It's been out since the 50s, but uh, or maybe early 60s. I'm not sure which, but it's, it's, a, it's a great book. But the real story, the medical story of the Civil War, is the story of surgeons and assistant surgeons combating ever-present disease on, on both sides of the conflict. Now, related to when they did do uh, when they did do amputations, they did have anesthesias. Now, we know that anesthetic agents were employed in the Civil War. One of the major manufacturers of anesthetic agents during the war was Dr. Edward R. Squibb of Squibb fame. He had a, uh, a chemical uh, plant in uh, Brooklyn, New York. Now, the General anesthetic of choice during the Civil War was chloroform. About 76% of all of the recorded uh, general anesthetics that were administered during the war were chloroform-induced. Um, uh, and the reason they were chloroform-induced rather than the earlier and more popular ether was that ether was extremely flammable. Hmm. So you can imagine a field hospital or a unit that was near the front, a stray shell or something that would that would hit near the uh, uh, near the uh, the uh, the hospital uh, could actually send it past the unit. So um, they used they they definitely preferred the the anesthetic agent of, of preference was chloroform. But one of the things that happened in in terms of general anesthesia is that I think we know a record of about about 9,500 9, to 9,700 recorded cases of general anesthesia being used. Now, we know far, far more were used than that. These are just the ones that we actually have the case studies for. But anyway, of those roughly 95 to 9,700 um uh, cases of general anesthesia being used, um, there was only 30-some-odd deaths. Really? 
That was going to be my next question. How, how safe was that? Uh, it, well, and that's the point. The Civil War really settled the question of the safety of general anesthesia, and really after that war made anesthesia a, a, a basic general standard of care. Before that, there were some questions about its safety, about dosage. Quite frankly, there were even questions. Clergy had questions about whether or not it was God's will for us to have pain. Um, these were questions that were largely settled um, by the large-scale administration of general anesthetic agents due to the war. And it, we came out of that war with general anesthesia being generally accepted. Of course, the, the first time general anesthesia was used um, was probably Crawford Long in Georgia, but he never wrote it up. So the first official case was the dramatic removal of a tumor from a man's neck at, uh, at uh, Mass General Hospital on October the 16th, 1846. We're going to take another short break, but this is a fascinating subject. We'll come back and talk more about uh, Civil War medicine in general and hospital stewards, Stuart uh, Spencer Bonsall in particular, with our guest today, Michael Flannery. We'll be back in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. 